it, Top. She's nothing but trouble. You better keep your mind off what you're thinking. What do you want to do, wind up in Leavenworth? You're doing fine, Sergeant. My husband's off somewhere, and it's raining outside, and we're both drinking now. I never knew it could be like this. Nobody ever kissed me the way you do. That gal was sure bad news. Ah! Re-enlist my blues. <laughs> Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. This episode, we are honoring actress Donna Reed. It is her centennial, and we are doing that by looking at the film that secured her a Best Actress Oscar, 1953's From Here to Eternity. Supporting? Yeah, supporting. Audrey Hepburn won Best Actress that year. I always love the inevitable discussions we have every Oscar season about category fraud, quote unquote, and where actors end up being placed. That'll be interesting to talk about. What film did Audrey win for? Was it Sabrina? Roman Holiday. Roman Holiday. Oh, yeah, that's right. I should know that. (laughs) Let's jump into this. Most people hear the name Donna Reed and they are like me and they know the Donna Reed show, the Pearls, the Unattainable Breakfasts the jokes the Gilmore Girls made about her being this throwback to 1950s domesticity and the lives of quiet desperation that have come to define that era. But I think that's a bit of a misnomer. Donna Reed is more than just the Donna Reed show. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. She had quite a long career. She started as a teen ingenue. I mean, she always had that innocence to her, that sort of homeliness. When people think of the classic 50s housewife, they think of Lucille Ball. Donna Reed should also be part of that conversation. And of course, you see It's a Wonderful Life. You can't talk about Donna Reed without talking about that film. Her career goes back farther and continues farther into the future than the 50s as well. She was in a couple of the Andy Hardy movies. And of course, she played very against type in something like the movie we're going to talk about today, From Here to Eternity. So I feel like she was a pretty dynamic actress that doesn't really get a lot of attention aside from her housewife, homely basic roles. I would also like to shout out anyone else in my category who was introduced to her when she took over... On Dallas, the primetime television show that my family watched constantly. That's right. She was Miss Ellie Ewing on Dallas. No, you're totally right. As somebody who was watching WandaVision this week, which itself is a throwback to those old 1950s sitcoms, had to dive into the world of the Donna Reed show, which in the grand scheme of 1950s, 1960s sitcoms, Samantha, you're totally right. It is a series that really did set the tone for the era, but is often completely ignored compared to the likes of I Love Lucy. And I wonder how much of that has to go with syndication. You can Mm. find I Love Lucy on Hulu. You can find it on various channels. It's replayed every Christmas. Donna Reed doesn't play on anything. I don't even think it's available to stream. So I'm wondering if a lot of that forgetfulness comes from a lack of access that's definitely part of it the argument that i always bring up i may be wrong about this correct me if i am the donna reed show may have been recorded on kinescope this is a conversation that i always love to have 99 percent of shows in the 50s aside from basically i love lucy was the exception was filmed on kinescope all of the game shows to tell the truth, what's my line, those are filmed on Kinescope. If you see those Kinescope shows nowadays, the quality is terrible. Mm-hmm. Basically, you're not going to stream those shows anywhere because they just don't look good. Whereas I Love Lucy, Lucille Ball had the foresight to record her shows on film. That and The Twilight Zone 
that's why they're easily accessible because they're still available in such good quality. No one's going to really watch the Donna Reed show if it was filmed in Kinescope, even if it was available to stream. You can't actually stream all five seasons of the Donna Reed show on Amazon Prime Video. Who knew? I was going to say, who knew? <laughs> now we know. The Donna Reed show has always been interesting to me in the context of being representational for a certain sort of American housewife or domesticity. And it's ironic because talking about the roles that she always had, they were always relatively serious and very beautiful and very feminine. And that stayed true. But with the Donna Reed show, one of the reasons that it was created for her and that she was a driving force in it was wanting to do more comedy, wanting to do things that she couldn't. So there's a certain sort of self-empowerment that that show represented for Donna Reed. And yet the Donna Reed show was under attack somewhat rightfully and somewhat not for so long as being this embodiment of negative standard that women were meant to either uphold or were falling short of. The very beautiful and always put together housewife who took care of the children and had a full meal and handed her husband his coat on the way out. She represented this era that so many burgeoning feminists were hoping to break free of. And yet that show for her had represented breaking free of a similar construct. I'm sure someone's teaching it really well somewhere. <laughs> the series does get a bit of a bum rep, even though it was... Donna Reed became one of the first female producers and showrunners of her own series. It was originally created and conceived because the sitcoms that had come out in the early 50s, Your Father Knows Best, Your Life of Riley's, Your Ozzie and Harriet's were all focused on the fathers. In reality, mothers were doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And so Donna Reed really wanted to showcase that. But Dre, you're totally right that this series was ruined by second wave feminism, which do not send your angry emails to us on ticklish business about second wave feminism. I know that Donna Reed did want to do a reunion of the cast after the series had concluded in the early 1960s, but part of that had to do with the fact that cast members were starting to pass away by the late 70s, but also that feminists were really targeting Donna Reed as this example of the chains that they had to break out of and how Donna Reed became this example of everything that women had hated and were just so desperate to remove themselves from. Donna Reed was a Republican her entire life. I'm sure she had thoughts about all of this, but it's really fascinating that feminism of the late 1970s really pinpointed this show as opposed to other sitcoms that also had housewives but ironically it is a series that was giving its leading lady the chance to be her own creator yeah i wanted to double check this because she was a republican her whole life but i also find it fascinating in the late 60s when her oldest son was drafted and was a complete pacifist she became a very staunch anti-war activist and supporter of that movement which is that idea that's completely human and also frustrating that of people incapable of embracing other mindsets until it affects them personally but that said growth is growth humans be human and i read that too i found that really fascinating not only the fact that she was anti-vietnam war but also anti-anti-nuclear activist there are definitely a lot of layers to her personality here that are really interesting to explore. I mean, especially considering the movie we're going to be talking about today is such a departure from her standard, her type that we know her as. It also brings up the question of, is this a political film per se? Because it feels at times like it is, but not in the propagandic, yay america we're going in type of thing but at the same time it feels very weird it's something i want to talk about in a second but to go back to donna reed and her political beliefs i do find it always funny when we talk about a lot of these <coughs> stars political thoughts had changed as the decades went on a lot of the stars we talk about were republican were their political affiliations on their sleeve so it's always fun to me to look at the films they made versus their 
political affiliations. If we ever talk about Ronald Reagan actor, that'll be a weird conversation. Beyond our scope, certainly my capability, parties themselves have adjusted so much over the years of what they represent and what their platforms are. You could say things as a shorthand, but it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing of someone who was that in 1947 versus someone who's that in 2020. But again, Ticklish Business is not a political show. And relatively clueless in that area. (laughs) Yes, so let's dive into the movie and and Donna Reed specifically. So From Here to Eternity is the story of a group of soldiers stationed in Hawaii leading up to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Stars Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Cliff, Deborah Carr, which I want to talk about Donna Reed and Deborah Carr because they are two women that I notoriously confuse for each other. Maybe that is often the point, but we can talk about Deborah Carr's career trajectory, which I think is somewhat similar, only a bit more refined and elegant, (laughs) yes, than Donna Reed's. Frank Sinatra, Ernest Borgnine's in there. This is not as star-studded as, like, The Longest Day or something like that. Jack Warden. Yes, Jack Warden's in there. A lot of stars. This was a first-time watch for me. I had never seen this. This is something that is not in my wheelhouse at all. I avoid war movies. I avoid Fred Zinneman movies because they're usually long and they're usually about war. I don't tend to like Burt Lancaster. Frank Sinatra, I have a grudging interest in. So this has all the hallmarks of this is not a Kristen film. It comes out in the early 1950s where we've talked about how I tend to not like movies of that era because of the changes in story structure. I watched this last night. This was a film that it's two hours. It took me about five to get through because I kept pausing it and doing other things. It's a good movie, but this is never going to be something I will ever watch for anything other than research purposes. Drea, what about you? Am I being a Grinch? No, last night was also my very first viewing of this movie. And it's one of those because it's from here to eternity. Everybody sees that wave embrace in their head. You say the words and you're like oh yeah i know that movie and i think i thought i'd seen it and then honestly i was like oh this takes place pearl harbor no clue no clue of any of it i had mentioned to you guys i come from a relatively versed military family my grandpa was a marine and he was based at pearl harbor he was on the uss tennessee which was struck during the attack and then he manned the guns the whole rest of the day all the rest of the attack my brother's currently in the military and as an officer, so Burt Lancaster would hate him, knowing the ranks. And there's a lot of subtle, very specific military things in here in terms of if you are a civilian and watching and you hear Burt Lancaster called a sergeant and then rail against being an officer, I'm sure it can be confusing. So they get into all these very specific weeds of non-commissioned officers versus field officers, which to me is how I was like, oh, this was based on a book for sure. I felt very redeemed in discovering that. First view, I have a lot of thoughts. I have a very strong theory on something that I'll wait a bit to get into. Interested in looking at this, and I will say... I'm middling about it. I have a lot of problems with the story. Samantha, what about you? When we talked about doing a Donna Reed series, you had originally suggested doing a top three, and then we all said that we had not seen three movies. We all settled on From Here to Eternity, and I know you are a fan of this film, and I hate to rain on your parade. So what do you think about this movie? Why do you think it's not just a good example of the genre that it's in but also a good example of donna reed's work i am so amazed that it's a first time watch for both of you because this just goes to show how different our cinema discoveries have been because this is one of the first classic movies i ever saw my grandparents had a vhs up in their cabin in the mountains and i used to watch this movie on repeat Definitely my first foray into Montgomery Clift and my adoration of him. I will always stand to say that this is one of, if not Frank Sinatra's finest performance. But as far as Donna Reed goes, and she did win Best Supporting Actress for this. As I touched on before, this is such a huge departure for her. This was actually the first Donna Reed film I ever saw before even It's a Wonderful Life. So to see her play a pseudo-prostitute 
and then see her as she was presented usually was really jarring to me so i imagine this must have been very jarring to audiences in 1953 and this movie is such a classic and it's such a an essential if i hosted the essentials i would probably pick this as you sort of mentioned, Drea, it touches on so many specifics of the military. It's a really amazing example of how the military wasn't all sunshine and roses and it didn't treat all of its soldiers fairly. There's just so much to talk about. I want to meet anyone who thinks that being in the military was sunshine and roses. I know what you're saying in terms of... Well, I'm uh, talking about all of the World War II movies that encourage people to enlist. This is really refreshing. I know that they had to get army approval because they straight up shot on a base. They're in the barracks. There's certainly several moments or exchanges or scenes in this that feel very recruitment propaganda of that's not how we are and it's well you sort of okay like i get on this side of it story-wise maybe you are a little bit but it does have shades of darker things that would certainly come out in like vietnam set war films you're like full metal jacket of like the abuse of power and things and seeing it here with this 50s gleam to it that the abuse of power was shinier almost like you have this captain who wants the best boxing team so he's like merciless towards i forget montgomery cliff's face is just stupid when he shows up and you're like well, shut up with that face you also have those arms it's just dumb he's just so beautiful <laughs> and so i was like he shouldn't be allowed to box someone could hit that beautiful face so I was thrilled that he did not box. In um, fact, well, he does get in one fight, but... There's a lot to unpack there. Andreas confused me with the beautiful face of Monty Cliff. That's so- how I throw people off my scent. <laughs> Aren't we all confused by the beautiful face of Monty yes. Cliff? So there's a couple things to unpack here. You guys are pointing out what I brought up at the beginning of this, which is this doesn't feel like a standard America F yeah type of movie that you would often get in the 50s or even in the early aughts when we did the war in Iraq. I think of something like Reverie with Beverly where at the end of it it's just this USO show men marching to enlist go out to war yeah we're gonna stop these people but also let's not think about the fact that a lot of these guys are gonna die. This is a film that I don't often like to bring up Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor because who would but There is a similar sentiment as I was watching this movie. I am not comparing these two movies on terms of quality. One is vastly better than the other. In the sense that this is a film where a lot of it is about the minutia of the day-to-day life. Final 20 minutes, you're like, oh, crap, Pearl Harbor, which it almost comes out as this very ominous thing. Burt Lancaster standing by this calendar that says December 6th. And I didn't even catch my mom's all, does that say December 6th? She's like, December 7th. I was like, oh, Pearl Harbor. So I keep wondering how audiences would have taken this in 1953 when that moment is so divorced and you have to be reminded of it. A large majority of this movie has nothing to do with actual war training, just the day-to-day elements of them going to visit a not brothel. Robert Pruitt, his full name is Robert E. Lee Pruitt, which we can talk about that bit of nonsense him being a bugler and not wanting to fight because he's got skeletons in his past and Lancaster dating the commander's wife. It's a melodrama couched within a war story, which is different than most war stories where it's all about reminding us. And I wonder if that is because by 1953, we're in this period of relative stability. We're not fighting anybody aside from like the Korean War, which is often the Forgotten War we're able to look at this more of let's just look at what these guys were going through as opposed to what they endured. Oh yeah. It's not a war film until the last 10 minutes before then the army could be a factory. It's a workplace drama. The stories of what they're doing and the hierarchy and the uppers and the lowers. It's a workplace drama in a romantic melodrama casing candy shell. If you were, That is such a fascinating point presented by both of you. 
I haven't read the original novel cover to cover, but I do have a first edition copy that I referenced a little bit in this. The biggest difference is, of course, we say pseudo-prostitute. <laughs> the New Congress Club was not the New Congress Club. I knew it. Book. Let's just say that. Other than that, in the book, they do touch on the realities of war a little bit. It is a little more of a war book than it became a war movie. I really didn't even think about it until you mentioned, Drea, that you could switch out the army for something else. And this could still be a really solid movie. It's not so interwoven into the plot that it's unable to be separated. To go back to this being a melodrama, too... What was happening on screen was just a small fraction of what was happening off screen, too, because Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr were allegedly in a relationship off screen. So that enhanced a lot of their on screen tension. The censors said that we had to add a skirt to Deborah Carr's bathing suit so it wasn't too provocative. Frank Sinatra was having a mental breakdown because his marriage to Ava Gardner was going down the skids and he was threatening to kill himself on set. What was it? Harry Cohn refused to let Fred Zinnemann cast Montgomery Cliff because he said, this is not my words. These are Harry Cohn. No one liked him anyway. Harry Cohn said, quote, Montgomery Cliff was no soldier, no boxer, and probably a homosexual. And Fred Zinnemann said, I'm not going to make this movie unless we cast him. There was a lot of behind they the were, scenes They were both stuff. right. They were both right, yes. There was a lot going on behind the scenes that enhances the inherent tension of this movie, which is, at its core, not necessarily about the Japanese versus Americans, but about how men treat and belittle and categorize each other more than anything else. Oh, absolutely. I just want to touch on one relationship that we haven't brought up, and that's between Burt Lancaster and Montgomery Clift during the filming of this movie. Burt Lancaster, he'd been around the block by the time this was made, and he was very much in the old school of acting. He'd done The Killers before this, Brute Four, to name a couple. When Montgomery Clift made this he had done the search but he was still fairly new on the block and he of course was other than Kristen's man john garfield the father of the method so there's this one scene in particular i mean i hate to totally go off the rails not talking about donna reed here there's this one scene in particular where the two characters are drunk and they're sitting in the middle of the road for filming of that scene montgomery clift actually got drunk And Burt Lancaster got pissed at him because he was like, why do you need to get drunk to do this scene? Just act. And of course, Monty, the method actor, could not do that. That perfectly ties into what you're talking about with the male tension surrounding this film. And you can really see that chemistry or anti-chemistry, if you'll call it, between the two when you watch it. This movie is so interesting. If you look at it, in terms of power structures, in terms of the patriarchy, in terms of very rigid social expectations. To me, the females are hands down more interesting than any men in this movie. You're looking at two women, representational of many, whose lives are 100% dictated by what men and male-led society will allow them to do or is accepting for them to do They also are both in terrible relationships. Neither of them should be dating either of those idiots. Burt Lancaster, on their very first date, literally right after the famous scene of them uncomfortably... You guys, sand is not comfortable. Wet sand, uncomfortable. So they're rolling in the surf. They're super scratched up and uncomfortable. It's super hot. I was miserable. I'm like, this is supposed to be hot. All I can think of is how uncomfortable... They do all this. He's met her. This is after she's already given him an easy out and been like, are you having second thoughts? He waits till after this. They sit down and he starts slut shaming her in about 0.02 seconds. Brings up that she's had affairs with other men. I was like, run away. This guy is trash and not worth it. And I really never saw him recover from that. Their whole relationship. I was like, okay, he showed up at your house, stalked you out. You did not ask him there. You did not open that door. So I found their whole thing very toxic. 
And then Donna Reed's character, whom you meet again as the pseudo prostitute, set up so, so well. She looks stunning. She has to be a brunette because Deborah Carr is blonde and she looks incredible. She's always wearing black when she's at work. They refer to her as the princess. She looks very regal. She and Montgomery Cliff share this amazing glance across a crowded room. There's chemistry, there's spark. And then from then on, he's a petulant, jealous baby man child who just wants all of her attention and time, even though she's the best worker, the best whatever. And he's like, whoa, baby wants attention. Both of those men are garbage. None of those relationships are good. Those women will both be so much better off without them. R.I.P. Monty Cliff's character. You Ugh. point out something that I kept noticing, and because this is ticklish business and I'm me, the overarching word I kept thinking of watching this movie was homoeroticism. Because a lot of the conversations these men have you're starting to wonder, are we talking about war or are we talking about something else? The interplay between Burt Lancaster and Montgomery Cliff, Montgomery Cliff's character is a bugler. They keep talking about him and his bugle, him and his bugle. I'm like, okay, he's got a real intimate relationship with this bugle. They're very thrown by the fact that he won't fight anymore. And now he's just the best bugler in town. And they're like, why won't you do your real talent? There's this love and admiration from all the characters for Pruitt for his desire to not want to fight and his desire to find his little niche in the world and deal with it in his own way and when he does finally have to fight and throw down for justice for Maggio the Frank Sinatra character after Ernest Borgnine's sadomasochistic character who gets off on people's pain he finally fights there's this horror to it it causes Burt Lancaster's character to respect him almost when he goes AWOL Lancaster's character doesn't report it doesn't say anything just lets it stand which you do not do (laughs) (laughs) but did anybody else this film positions the love and that doesn't necessarily need to be romantic love but the love between these soldiers for their company for each other almost transcends the physical relationships they have with women that's very accurate it's an inherent part of the military structure like that's what basic training is about is breaking down how you see your relationship to things and recentering it to putting your role in the military in a very specific way how you relate to the men around you how you relate to your superiors that's their whole thing they have to have people it's one of the other reasons that the ending of this is so glaring to me because, of course, Montgomery Clift has gone AWOL. He's coming back. He's like, oh, I got to get back in the fight. I'm a soldier. I want to be a soldier. He has this whole running thing of how he, he, I'm a career guy. I'm a 30-year guy. I'm like, oh, cool. He's running back. And yet, in a million years, if that dude hears halt, he's halting. That is part of that training. That ending, I was like, well, you just negated everything before it. But going back to the sexual side of it i'd like to present you guys with my theory because it ties into this which is there's three very strong either life representations in this or kinks burt lancaster's character his entire attraction to deborah carr is motivated behind he is someone who wants to cuckold superiors and that's it that's what drives it she's a beautiful woman he's attracted to her but when her husband is literally has to resign in shame and he's no longer a superior, Bert is like, see ya, what I'm interested in is cuckolding and you no longer have that for me, so bye. What for Maggio, the Sinatra character, that one's so coded homosexual to me. He's the smaller guy. He always talks about his love. I like a really tall woman. Oh, some would say a masculine woman. And then also this hyper Ernest Borgnine relationship. He says something of like, guys like you always end up in the stockade. And like, what do you guys like you? He has a whole thing. And then Montgomery Clift, I was like, oh, that guy's a masochist. Truthfully, he and Judson should have got together because that would have been, oh, you guys, you need one for each other. Montgomery Clift likes to be hurt. 
that's the reality of it. Watching it was like, man, there's a lot of kink at play in this thing. Fascinating. I love you, Drea, so much. You and I <laughs> on the same crazy. page. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think that there is something to what Fred Zinnemann, who did not serve in World War II, but he did lose his parents in the Holocaust, and he had very strong thoughts about the war that he would showcase in a lot of films from the late 40s into the 1950s. He did a similar film earlier to this called The Men, which is also about the psychological traumas of being a military man. In this case of this movie, there is something to deliberately casting Montgomery Cliff as the soft boy bugler of this brigade. But he's not a soft boy. He's a pugilist before he's a bugler. (laughs) And I will say the bugle, because I know where you're going, but by the bugle or bugler as a sort of coding if they hadn't shown him bugling several times (laughs) you actually do see him play and play incredibly well that tap sequence is so moving like yeah he's weeping while playing taps and that worked for me it does a lot towards what zinnemann did with persona in terms of Mm. taking somebody like Montgomery Clift, who Harry Cohn said wasn't a soldier and he's definitely a homosexual. And he was like, you know what? He may not look like a soldier. He may be a homosexual, but I'm going to put that character there. And the audience is going to determine what they think about that. And I think it works. It does redress Montgomery Clift's persona and make you see him in a different way. The same can also be said for somebody like Frank Sinatra playing this very minor role in the grand scheme of things as the guy who is all up for a good time, but then ends up dying at the hands of this dude who is just pure muscle and sadism. It's an interesting reversal of those masculine tropes. This whole movie just goes to show that I would be either a great or a terrible casting director in the 50s. Because (laughs) I look at all this correspondence, as you're mentioning, between Harry Cohn and Fred Zinnemann talking about how Montgomery Clift and the critics said as well that he was miscast for this. But I personally disagree. I think he's perfect for it. It's very hard to even separate the two, in my mind, the actor from the character, because he does such a good job here. I think he should have won Best Actor over William Holden. Fred Zinnemann made a really strong argument because he directed Monty in The Search, which is a similar role. He did a fantastic job in that. If anybody hasn't seen that, you really should. Going back to the women, the reason why I personally always find myself more gravitated towards Montgomery Clift and his relationship with the army and Burt Lancaster and his relationship with the army in this film is because both women are horribly miscast. I might be wrong. Oh. I don't know. That's just my personal opinion. Let's start with Donna Reed because she's our star of the day. And we sort of touched on it before. She was known as the gentle, homely 50s housewife, and she's playing an exotic princess prostitute. Doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and there are the scenes where she's dressed more in civilian clothes and she talks about wanting a home and a family. And I relate to that a little more as far as her persona. But then you have Deborah Carr, who was extremely prim and proper. She literally played a nun multiple times. <laughs> and here she is as an adulterous army wife who's making out on the beach in a bathing suit with Burt Lancaster. I just don't buy it. That's crazy to me because the women had so much more well-rounded performances. I enjoyed that they were not typecast, that they were cast against type because I bought it. I thought Donna Reed has several times where her line delivery is just exquisite. She wants to get married to someone who's proper so she can live a proper life. You just get this, oh, it's heartbreaking. Like, it's this woman, this beautiful woman who's made herself seem super refined because she's clearly from trash and very worried about staying trash. And maybe it's because they changed it to this social club rather than an actual brothel. Her very regal bearing and how that would attract men fit to me and deborah carr's i was like oh that woman would be on so many pills now not that the 50s weren't known for its pills but i found her very complex and in this unhappy marriage but also again navigating she was not gonna leave her husband for anyone less than an officer partially because to navigate 
life in the military, you don't get to choose where you are. Only certain stations get to have partners with them or whatever, but they both handled their roles so well. But it also might be because I'm not as well versed with other, well, no, I mean, Deborah Carr certainly do. I'm not as seeing them only one way or another. Maybe it's because I'm not a time traveler as well. So I'm decades past this, whereas Samantha is living in multiple places in time at the same point. So it's a trickier thing to juggle. I definitely agree with what you're talking about with the character of Alma. Donna Reed does the absolute best with what she was given. I can't say that she wasn't deserving of the Oscar because I hate to say it, I I don't feel like her competition was very stiff either. I mean, I'm looking, she was against Thelma Ritter for Pickup on South Street. Grace Kelly from Ogamba. I adore Grace Kelly, as anyone who listens to this podcast knows, but I would not have given Grace Kelly an Oscar from Ogambo. <laughs> Geraldine Page and Hondo. So Donna Reed deserved the Oscar above any of them. But let's use our brains for a second and brainstorm. What if, I mean, we're talking about a character who comes from trash, who wants a better life for herself. What if you cast an actress who's known for playing a little more unsavory roles. Like I'm thinking, what about Gloria Graham? What if Gloria Graham had done a role like this? What would that have been like? Why are you trying to make Donna Reed be drunk like Montgomery Cliff? They can act. They don't have to actually drink. (laughs) But I'm talking about like visualizing. There's a very deliberate logic behind this. So this is my theory, and it goes back to the homoeroticism a little bit. Not not completely. Because this is more about the bonds of brotherhood more than anything, you need women where the audience would be like, oh, these are fleeting types of things. In the, except in the case of Monty Cliff's character and his relationship with Donna Reed's Alma. Don't think, though, that you could have gotten somebody like Gloria Graham, because remember, we're not selling this as a prostitute situation. Donna Reed is not a hooker. She's not a sex worker in any sense of the word. So to cast somebody that oozes sexuality would have made that harder to buy watching this movie and be like, oh, wait, so she's not going to sleep with this guy. She hasn't slept with men. I don't think the executives and Zinnemann and all of them thought that audiences would buy that chastity coming from a woman like a Gloria Graham. It's easier to get a woman like Donna Reed who can still be that feminine presence, but is not putting out, so to speak. Right. By association, this movie is supposed to be putting Montgomery Cliff's character on a pedestal as an exemplary soldier and to have him attracted to a Gloria Graham type might, Mm -hmm. as much as I hate to say it because I love Gloria Graham as well, might cheapen him a little. Listen, the whole point of this episode was so we could get Kristen Lopez to say Donna Reed is not a hooker. (laughs) So I feel like our work here is almost done. I mean... (laughs) Happy to please on that one. The problem that I have with the women in this film, and we're talking about playing against type versus not playing against type, I just wish one of the two had been accurate to the type of actress. (laughs) It's the fact that both of them are so against type to me is what makes it confusing. Let's throw Gloria Graham's gender card at and see how things go. If one of them was cast to type and one was cast against type, wouldn't it mean they... Oh my god, I'm turning this into a math problem. Then I feel like they would be... The actresses in real life would be too similar if you're doing a swap for both of them, there's less to compare because the other concern with any kind of movie like this is it's not like it always comes up, but should they have switched? If you're playing with things of like, Oh, should Donna Reed have played the wife, the beleaguered wife waiting for some dude to come through the rain and just ruin her life. I'll never forgive Burt Lancaster's character. Terrible judgment. Terrible imposition, taking advantage of this poor woman. Talking about and about playing against type, I can't imagine switching them either because <laughs> the little that I know about Deborah Carr is her having affairs to remember. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it always shocks me that this is a film that is so interested in going against preconceived types, and yet, from here to eternity, is often most famously known 
for being the film that George Reeves tried to invigorate his career as an actor while he was making the Superman series. And he claimed that he was cut out of the movie because audiences at a test screening were laughing and could not buy him as a soldier. So I find that to be a bit of a bitter irony watching this. Oh, I didn't know that. That's hysterical because especially when they bring all the soldiers together, you're like every range of white guy. Are you interested in a funny, dumpy white guy who always has a candy bar in his hand? Have we got the guy for you? You like <laughs> super weirdly, overly testosterone aggro guys. We got it. <laughs> we have everything except for George Reeves. Sorry. We talked about how this isn't really a war movie until the final 10 minutes of the film. But I did like the actual tasteful way that this is all sold you know that the japanese did it but this is not a movie where characters are like we're going over there to give them the what for it's presented very realistically with Pruitt and alma listening on the radio hearing them try to give people solace and tell them to not go out of course Monty's character has to go out there and and prove his mettle, leading to Alma getting the final speech of the movie. That's definitely what secured her the Oscar nomination, is that she does get that final say at the end, giving his character meaning. Which is all a lie, which is her final speech is her 100% (laughs) lying about him, his role in the military, how he died, what he did. She's clasping the bugle. I love that ending. I will say, for all its faults, the idea that it's these two women on a boat leaving this island, leaving the men, leaving the stories, interacting with each other. There's always that fun thrill when you see characters and something interact. And you, you, oh, she knows her? What? And they're just standing next to each other. And there is that great realization. Deborah Carr is like, she knows who Donna Reed is talking about. And she knows it's a lie. And they're standing on the ship. It's great. Goes towards the fact that we tend to revise history. We tend to revise persona, especially when people die. That we tend to make them out to be more than they might have been. That whole ending speech is a huge testament to what Alma's character is like. You can tell that she's packing her things, going back home putting all of this in her past and building this very squeaky clean version of what happened. And you know, she's going to go straight to the country clubs and tell all of the rich men about her brave and fearless fiance who died for the greater good. And it's going to make her look great. And she's going to totally cover up the truth. And it just seems so in line with her character. It's going to make her look proper is what it's going to make her look proper. I do want to throw out really quickly, Ernest Borgnine is the villain. I love that more than anything else, the villain is not the Japanese. The villain is not World War II. The villain is Ernest freaking Borgnine. (laughs) They keep calling him Fatso, but he's Sergeant Judson. As somebody who has seen Ernest Borgnine play villains, predominantly in Westerns, I was really surprised that more than anything, he is the common enemy that everybody has. He's a great villain. He's great at this because you look at him and he also has grown up man baby face and he just looks like a bully. Were you wondering what bullies grow up to be? This guy. And he's this big physical presence and he's dismissive and insulting and ugh. He did a terrific job with this. He is a great villain, which is funny because I also think of him with such love and lightness for other roles that he's had. His knife fight with Montgomery Clift is maybe the worst hand-to-hand fight I've ever seen on film. It is so amazing. They're like in an alley. It looks like if right now I, Samantha and I were going to go have a knife fight. It's basically the exact choreography if the two of us were like, I guess I'm going to hold the knife like this. I'm not saying I want to knife fight you, Samantha, but <laughs> I know what it would look like if I did. now we know i watched that scene and i just still even in the absolute heat of rage and revenge can't imagine montgomery clift coming within 50 feet of her sport nine and thinking that he'll walk away unscathed well based on the novel had 
really did tamp down a lot of the homosexual themes and suicide and the prostitution. But they said one of the big things that it toned down or removed was the fight between Maggio and Judson that culminates in Maggio's death because this is according to author J.E. Smythe, the film's treatment of Judson's behavior, quote, has all the indications of sexual abuse and reinforces a lot of the fears of homosexuality in the military. I definitely think that that is what gives that character that extra veneer of, I keep saying like sadomasochism, but that fear and that horror is that this is a guy for which there are no boundaries. When you look at it in its Ernest Borgnine, you're like, Marty? Marty? Like, Marty? I mean, he's Marty really? to me always. Even if you took out the possible sexual reading of that, how his abuse is described by the other guy who comes out of the stockade that Cliff's character interacts with, he knows what he's doing. He hits him where he can't be seen by other officers. Spousal abuse, child abuse, sorry. This is all like very much in content warning category. The idea of the abuse that Judson is inflicting is that mannered, thought out how he can hurt someone and get away with it. It's a horrifying assumption. You're like, yes, please, I hope someone stabs him in an alley somewhere and he dies. Can that happen? Can I please get, oh, thank God. Donna Reed, watching her in this versus playing Mary in It's a Wonderful Life, I never believe that she is enmeshed in the role 100%. It still feels like Mary with just black hair, but it shows how the studio system really did attempt to either put characters in the same tropes over and over again, or really show that you could put studio actors in everything. They tried anything once and then saw what worked. And I think this is a good example of that. Out of the three of us, Donna Reed knocked this out of the park. I was fully believing where she was coming from, believing that someone who was coming out of a rough background would put on an overly polished facade to try and protect themselves and move forward in society. And she was cognizant of what was necessary to be successful and to live like she wanted to live. She embodied all of that. I found her having pitches and levels where I thought Montgomery Clift does a great job, but he's one note. From the minute he shows up and is like, I'm not going to fight. Yeah, my guy, you're going to be that guy every single scene you do. He doesn't modulate other than when he's drunk. Whereas Donna Reed, I found a lot more nuance in what she was doing at any given moment of what she was revealing about herself. Like when she tells him her real name is Alma, got such a like, oh, I, I saw the cracks in, like I said, this facade that this woman has put up for her own protection. I saw when she would let go or reach out to him or be vulnerable or real. And I thought she was doing some really heavy lifting in those areas. I'm super glad that she won. And also, you guys, Donna Reed is not a hooker. Her performance was really dynamic. I'm still on the fence about whether if I were casting this film, I would cast her. But as I said, she did the absolute best with what she was given. And she definitely did deserve the Oscar for it. Even having the guts to try out a part like this with the reputation that she had really says a lot about her desire to act really just a whole lot about her as a person what she was willing to try the boundaries that she was trying to push from here to eternity is not my favorite it will never be my favorite i'd be interested in seeing more donna reed stuff because she certainly had acting chops but i don't necessarily know if I would recommend this as a good example of her acting. I don't know. This had a lot of things that I just was not into that I was like, okay. But I think if anything, it, it intrigues me to see more of her work. She's fantastic. I definitely want to see more of her work. And you had said one thing earlier about confusing her and Deborah Carr to a certain extent. And I think part of it is they are both women with the most fine elfin features. And I was constantly, both of them, I was like, so pretty. Look at the pretty lady. There's this shot of Deborah Kerr when she's on the sand, just about to get slut shaved, that I was like, oh, she was so happy when she saw this footage. She looks so good. They both look incredible, but they're both very fine featured. And I'm excited to go watch more of both of their work. I've certainly seen more of Deborah's already, so I'll put Donna, our centennial sweetheart Donna Reed, I'll move up the list.
I love this film. I agree. I don't know if it's the best example of Donna Reed's work, but she didn't really have the front and center attention in as many films as she should have. They really did typecast her, especially throughout the 50s. So I think this is a really good example of something different that she was able to do and something that she received well-deserved acclaim for during her career. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it. It's part of the Donna Reed essentials, I'll say, whether it was perfectly Donna Reed or not. But as a film, just greater than that, it's one of the best war films ever made. And I just love Montgomery Clift. I always say if I could give any actor an Oscar who didn't get one, it would be Montgomery Clift and Nellie Wood for actress. I can't take my eyes off of him in this film. I think Frank Sinatra is incredible. It's one of the best Burt Lancaster films. It's so good. I love that it was filmed on location. I think it's essential. I think it's a classic. Well, listeners, let us know your thoughts on Montgomery Clift, homoeroticism, Donna Reed. We take all emails. You can email them to us at tiplishbase at gmail.com. And we'll read them on the next episode. Of course, you can always check out my work and what I'm doing over on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Samantha, where can fans find you? Read your work. What's going on there? You can find me on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. I've been doing some more live tweeting of movies on TCM recently. My blog is at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. And you can find my Cooking with the Stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com. And what about you, Drea Clark? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark, And I have a contemporary movie podcast called Who Shot Ya? That you can find wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> Well, you can also find this podcast wherever you find podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, which if you're listening through that, help us out and leave us a rating and review. We're also now on iHeartRadio. We are on Spotify. Our official Twitter is always ticklishbiz. And we are on Instagram. It's not updated as often as it should be, but we are also there as well. And don't forget to visit our shiny new website, which is at journeysandclassicfilm.com where we have our show notes, reviews. And if you want to help us out by giving us your money and get some special gifts, you can do that over at Patreon, which is patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. You get access to these shows early. We also have special pins, and we're giving out regular DVD and Blu-ray gifts to our patrons at several points during the year because we have a lot of stuff that we don't have room for anymore. You get access to a lot of fun things, including our bonus shows. We do Based on a True Podcast with William Bibiani and Double Features with Adam Kautzer. We just put up our latest Double Features episode on the dueling versions of Straw Dogs, which is an episode that's a lot funner to listen to than it might be to watch both of those movies. But we will be back next time with a new episode. So-